Hello, welcome to 8.9 Newsweek. I'm Finlow Costain. Newsweek is a collection of the audio from recent 8.9 video interviews. If you want to watch instead of listen, then please visit our website at 8.9.com and click on the TV tab. Four interviews for you today. Later in the programme, we'll hear from Pete Ritchie from Nourish Scotland about the country's progress towards being a good food nation. We'll hear thoughts about the proposed changes to Welsh agricultural policy from the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission in Wales. And I'll speak to Ignis van Schaik, the co-producer of a new movie, Planet Soil, which delves deep into the earth, turning invertebrates into stars. But first, We Feed the UK is a new photography and poetry series celebrating regenerative food production in the UK. The series is coordinated by the Gaia Foundation. I spoke to Rowan Fillimore from Gaia and asked her about the purpose of the We Feed the UK project. I mean, it's really a celebration of regenerative farming and of the custodians of land, seed, sea, soil. Um, There's some absolutely incredible work going on all across the UK from every corner of the UK in this time. And we just wanted to elevate that work, share stories that are really incredibly moving and inspiring and hopeful um, and do that through photography and spoken word um, and a collaboration with the arts part, uh, arts partners to really bring bring in new audiences to this to this moment in time and to such a critical issue right now. Now you've promoted this project as a series, but what do you mean by a photography and poetry series? So we launched in um, in Liverpool uh, on Thursday the eighth of February, and that marks the first of ten exhibitions going around the country. So in each exhibition, the series is that we focus on ten farming stories from ten different regions. 10 different themes and 10 photographers and 10 spoken word artists have have collaborated on on each story so the series is that in each area around the UK people will get a chance to see an exhibition that's unique to that area um it might be that in due course there is a sort of coming together of all 10 because they really speak to one another but at the moment it's a series that is is unique to that area I've actually I can quickly tell you for for your audience so so February Liverpool April Glasgow May Walsall the Black Country, June Brecon in Wales, September Shropshire, October London, November in Northumberland, and then January 2025, Northern Ireland, and April in Bristol in the Southwest. And each of those stories is unique. Fantastic. What a great tour. So starting in Liverpool, what would people coming to the Open Eye Gallery expect to find? So the exhibition is actually being put on as part of their climate lab. So there's a, a broader um, amount of work there as well. But the specific um, work that we we've done for Wifi the UK is the photographer Johannes Pretorius has visited um, a farm called Strictly Farm that is um, run by James Robinson and his family and he's really captured the story of biodiversity re- restoration there through um, ancient hedgerow ligging so that's been the sort of focus of that particular story it's a, it's one of intergenerational knowledge um, and the restoration of hedgerows um, and you'll see the photographs and then there'll also be a film there of the um, so with each story as I mentioned mentioned there's a, a spoken word artist's been attached to that story so um testament who is part of the hot poets group he has done an amazing it's a really moving um poem about the hedgerow ligging um and that's on display in the gallery as well what's the role do you think of the creative arts in helping to change public attitudes for example around farming with nature i think it's really important because i think that we can speak in our bubbles and you know it, it, 
how many audiences are really engaging with the environment sector or the farming trade press or you know it's like we've got to speak beyond that about this and this is such a it's such an accessible story i think you know food and farming affects absolutely everyone it's something we could all get behind there is such a moment of opportunity with a transition of farming and food production to something more regenerative and nature led that that actually it's it's a low hanging fruit almost and i think by bringing the arts together on it then it reaches a much wider audience and i mean the poets the hot poets who we're working with you know some of them are big name artists i mean disraeli you know he's a musician as well he's got a huge following totally different audience than that we would usually speak to so by doing a collaboration like this you broaden your audience hugely and also just i think we've got to the the urgency of the climate crisis and biodiversity loss means that we've got to stop talking in sectors and and be collaborative across and we've got to all rise together to the challenge so i think it's really important and it's been incredibly fun and i know that for all of the photographers, the poets, the arts partners, they have really enjoyed the last year, this journey of actually understanding regenerative farming and what's going on with farmers and, and food producers locally to them. And they are excited to share that, share that story with their audiences. Brilliant. Now, farming in the UK is notoriously lacking in diversity. And yet this project series is showcasing diversity. Why have you chosen to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's so fundamentally important to us because, you know, there's a real, there's actually some amazing projects going on being led by a really diverse range of people in cities and in rural areas. But I think the common perception that a farmer is, uh, you know, 50 something year old white male in the countryside is, you know, is actually incorrect now. And we need to challenge that. And the, the best way to challenge that is by showing other stories and showing diversity. And so, you know, We've got a couple of amazing stories, you know, in London, um, Black Roots and Go Grow With Love. Um, they're both doing amazing work connecting some of the diaspora communities there with food growing. Um, same in Walsall with um, No Diggity, um, led by Neville uh, Portis. So there's some amazing examples. And the um, Land in Our Name actually released a report in 2022 called Jumping Fences. And it was all about this, the barriers um, of, of getting people from different walks of life um, and BPOC communities into um, onto the land. And one of the main barriers identified was was just a lack that the narrative needs to change, that actually there are plenty of amazing examples of this in action and amazing people. So we want to elevate their stories just as much as anyone. So the range of stories that we're featuring there's there's amazing women growers there's amazing black-led community groups there's and then there's some amazing traditional farmers that are perhaps more akin to what you know we might think of in Northumberland and Cumbria but they're really pushing the boundaries of what's possible on the land there and just finally you've used the term hot poet several times what is a hot poet? <laughs> it was a good question. So the collaboration that, that with We Feed the UK has basically been that we've worked first with the photographers, which is what we did with We Feed the World, which is a, 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 um, a whole project that preceded this that we exhibited in 2018, where we sent 
photographers, well, they were based all over the world already, but they, they visited um, smallholder farming communities and they took the, um, you know, stories from them uh, to share with the world about the amazing resilience of these farmers. And that was wonderful. And it was exhibited in London. But with this sort of iteration of the project, we thought it would be really nice to bring another layer and a different kind of medium to tell these stories through. And we encountered the Hot Poets, which is founded by Liv Talk and, and Chris Redmond, who are themselves both award winning poets. Um, and they have this um, amazing way of curating spoken word artists with climate scientists or NGOs who perhaps, uh, you know, have an amazing message, but it's maybe not getting out there in a kind of way that reaches really hearts and a wider audience. So we struck up this collaboration with them. So they have identified 10 poets who are again regionally based um, to come together on these stories and to share it through spoken word. And uh, and I think that's a really exciting new element of, of this project. So we've got now photographers and uh, spoken word. And, and actually, just to say something about the the relatability of each project. One of the region, reasons that we really wanted this regionality to the, to the rollout was so that people could find someone that they identify with that feels familiar to them, that's, that's growing food in, in their landscape or that has their accent. So, you know, Kate Fox in the Northeast, she's the poet for the Northumberland story and so on. It's, it's, so it's, it's, there's a real range across the country there of voices and perspectives. That was Rowan Fillimore from the Gaia Foundation, an assessment commissioned by Welsh Government examining the impact of its proposed sustainable farming scheme forecasts a 10.8% reduction in livestock numbers across Welsh agriculture. NFU Cymru has called this a shocking scenario. I spoke to John Parker, Director for Wales at the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, and I asked him whether he agrees. I think where we are at the moment in the third consultation and the final consultation uh, there are still some key elements missing in terms of we, we understand what the headline budget is that's been put forward by the minister and been ring-fenced and retained, but we're still unclear with regard to payment rates, which provides a, a bit of a difficulty around um, some of the debate that can be had. And I think when we when we look at it in the round, we have to ask ourselves, is the budget sufficient to deliver a meaningful scheme? Are the payment rates going to provide parity with our neighbours in England, Scotland um, and Northern Ireland and indeed Ireland for uh, similar or comparative actions uh, that, that, that are being delivered through the scheme? And I think there are some real sticking points, um, as, as I'm sure everyone has picked up around the tree debate and the, the the requirement for tree planting within the scheme uh, alongside the habitat element. Um, Just outline that tree debate for me, would you? The, the, the tree planting element is centred around SF farms that sign into SFS need to have 10% of their land area uh, given over to tree planting. And another 10% habitat, which I understand can be within the tree, the, 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 the tree planted area. So... For farmers, uh, I see particularly on the dairy side, that that provides some difficulty in terms of moving uh, over into that 10% tree planting. And the debates that have existed around hedges and edges as part of that, alongside how this will be delivered in the long term against other Welsh government objectives, such as the National Forest, how does it you know, how how does this all link up really in terms of broader government policy? So 
the latest sort of pressure points around that in terms of political debate has been around the devaluation of land and questions around devaluation through tree planting. Just a couple of follow up questions. Thinking about that potential reduction in livestock numbers of around 11 percent, would that be such a disaster if it reduced input use and associated costs? And then are there opportunities for Welsh farmers to access natural capital markets to help to make up the funding shortfall? If we look at the ADAS model figures first, then yeah, okay, 122,000 units and I think it's 10.8% or there, thereabouts uh, reduction across what they've modelled as dairy and specialist sheep units. So I think if you take those figures in the round against sort of headage that's there at the moment, and we look at some of the broader implications that that has on the rural economy as a whole, I think that's where some concern is is developed um, within the farming unions and how the impact effectively spreads via the multiplier into the ancillary sectors that support agriculture, particularly on the the dairy side, I feel. So to come to your question um, with regard to how that impacts things like inputs, then yes, you know, there will be um, you can foresee an impact on uh, input if you're taking land out in terms of potentially synthetic fruit and other inputs. Again, it, it is it is really a question of, of yes, we understand the modelling that um, has been put forward with the scheme, but it is the wider implications for what that looks like for the fabric of the rural economy in Wales when... Um, if you take Welsh government's uh, figures, 90% of the land in Wales is farmed. So uh, while we accept that it does constitute a small uh, contribution to GDP, it does underpin the fabric of an extremely large area of Wales outside of our old coalfield areas, Cardiff, Newport, Swansea, um, Bangor in North Wales. So those are the sort of broader questions we have around rural development um, and the the socio-economic fabric of rural Wales with with Mm. the implications of the scheme. And the opportunities around natural capital? Yeah, you know, this is a core area for me in Food, Farming and Countryside Commission per se. In some areas, Wales is underdeveloped. So this week in the Senedd in Welsh Parliament, um, there was a statement from our climate change minister over the creation of the um, uh, by the, the body that's going to undertake governance in terms of biodiversity moving forward. We're really behind the curve on this. Um, England is far ahead, and so is Scotland. We've got some catching up to do on this. Mm-hmm. And in terms of biodiversity being part of what you might call a triad of natural capital in terms of carbon and soil, in terms of water quality, nutrient inputs, in terms of biodiversity net gain, I'm not seeing what I would like to be the level of sort of cross-fertilisation or discussion going on between SFS and what the natural capital markets can offer and where the fairness is in that for farmers to engage. So that's one area that I'm working quite hard on um, with stakeholders to try and build some discussion, some frameworks and some consensus around how we can fairly utilise natural capital markets 
John, how does the new sustainable farming scheme fit alongside other food and drink policies in Wales and also responsibilities under the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act? Handily enough, uh, Finlow, um, in my farm shed, I've got a library of previous policies stretching back to 1999, including this very old, dusty Farming for the Future, which was the very first um, consultation document for the future of farming in Wales. And funnily enough, when I when I look at it, it asks the questions in the very short sort of consultation response at the end, the core questions uh, around Welsh agriculture and land use must become more sustainable uh, environmentally and ecologically. Extreme changes in the structure of family farms must be guarded against. So this is this is the National Assembly for Wales's own document. 24, 25 years later, we are still asking the same questions. <laughs> so we have to ask ourselves, you know, 25 years on since the creation of Welsh Government, with, I would add, constitutionally, one of the, a handful of uh, countries in the world that has sustainable development as its constitutional cornerstone, mm-hmm. have we really evolved from the questions that we've asked in this document in terms of our food policy? So... You know, you could say, no, we've remained stagnant because we're still asking the same questions of how we transition. And to come on to where we are now in terms of the um, holistic food policy that we have, we have quite divergent pre- and post-Farmgate policies, where for the last 10 years, we've had a post-Farmgate food and drink policy um, direction that has focused on growth. And what I mean by that is the targets and the outputs have been purely focused on sales growth from 5 billion to 7 billion, and now from 7 billion to 8.5 billion. Pre-Farmgate, we now have a situation, which we've known in fairness for, for, for uh, some, some time, is looking towards compressing the sector. In, how that looks in terms of what that means in in what flavour of sustainable farming you might want to have in Wales, whether it's an agroecological transition for the whole food system, regenerative as part of that organic or sustainable intensification, all of these different flavours of what sustainable agriculture might look like. We do have quite divergent um, uh, policies existing within the food system space. And if we think about the the fact that, you know, in Wales, we are not isolated in the food system. We exist in a global food system. Our our largest uh, red meat processors are all foreign owned in Wales. Um, the impacts of the global food system and how that's changing also have impacts on our post-farm gate sector quite considerably in Wales in terms of what we might see as as consolidation moving forward. Now, clearly there's been some disquiet, but attitudes to the details of the sustainable farming scheme notwithstanding, how do you think the Welsh Government has handled the policy development and consultation process? Because it seems to me to have squandered quite a lot of goodwill, even among farmers already trying to farm agroecologically. Yeah, I think in terms of how the consultation has, uh, has progressed, Welsh Government have undertaken some good engagement. They've run quite a number of events all over Wales. They're going on at the moment. Um, the Minister has, has wanted to co-design and co-produce um, this uh, policy. I think there is a feeling that with those uh, sentiments of co-designing and co-producing, 
then really speaking, the decisions with regard to what the final the final decisions on what the the, the scheme will look like will be taken by the minister um, through her civil servants. So, for me, there are some questions about how we are proactive in terms of farmer input into the scheme going forward. We're moving through a sustainable farming scheme through continued delinking of agricultural payments. So this is just a continued step. And the difficulty for government and for Welsh government uh, is that you know, farmland is privately owned. It's a private resource. It produces food for our citizens. And I, I think that through the consultation needs to um, continue moving through into what you might call a co-managed approach to agricultural policy. I think that would go some way to delivering some consensus in the middle, away from these polarised um, debates that we're having at the moment over tree planting, over what the food system can deliver in Wales for climate change, for nature, and for uh, the provision of healthy food for our citizens. Moving forward and how Welsh Government engages with the sector, I think, is going to be really important in how policy develops over the coming years. And I think FFCC have tried to play a role in that as a convener um, in, in this space. And, um, you know, if if we look across to um, marine management, then co-management is the go-to tool in um, ecosystem mm focused fisheries management regimes. And personally, I would like to see Washcom and really being creative and innovative in this space and really thinking about how they can change their engagement with our farming communities in rural Wales in that area. John Parker from the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission. Scottish Government has published its plan to deliver on its world-leading Good Food Nation Act, which set out a legislative framework to help ensure that everyone in Scotland can access nutritious, sustainable food. Nourish Scotland was at the centre of the push for the 2022 Act, and Pete Ritchie is its director. I asked him what's meant by a good food nation. Well, it's certainly still out to the jury is what we mean. I'll say a bit more what it says in the Act itself and in the policy statements, but um, we just spent the morning working with some primary school children in Scotland who are going to be involved in a consultation about the Good Food Nation plan, and we asked them the very same question right at the beginning of the lesson, and um, there were some lovely comments, you know, so a nation filled with people eating healthy food, and they go on to say, but P6 and 7 have to pay for school meals, they should be free. Mm-hmm. So very concrete things for, for the, the kids in P6 who've now just had to start paying for their school meals where they didn't for the first five years. Another child says, more more fish, we eat more fish, more produce from the sea was a big thing, even though in Dundee it's not noted for its fishing fleet. Um, and then another child said, a good food nation is having a salad every week or so. And I think I could I could certainly buy that one. So in a sense, a good food nation is whatever you want it to be. But in the act, what it talks about in the policy document that comes before that, it talks about people in Scotland from every walk of life, which is a very inclusive thing, taking pride and pleasure in the food they eat every day. And at the same time, reducing the environmental impact of the food system and reducing the impact of dietary-related diseases. So there's a very clear health, climate, environment, but also this really important point about pride and pleasure. It's about a nation where actually... People think food's a source of enjoyment, it builds social cohesion, it's something that, that we're, we're interested in. And in a sense, we it's almost easy to talk about what's not a good food nation in a way, you know, in some of the aspects of our food culture, which have become really depleted, as well as the wide environmental and health impacts of it. 
mm-hmm. you know so i think we've 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 all got a sense of you know we'd be we'd be a nation which you know has regional variation like italy which you know reduces food waste like austria you know which has a connection to territory like the nordics you know which has a sort of willingness to spend a long time sitting around the table like france you know that has there's different cultures we can see around the world where you can say okay that's a bit of a good food nation you know okay. that's that's somewhat we want to capture in scotland but so it's about are, hard policy not just about sort of nice ideas what are the particular powers that the act set up to help deliver that good food nation the key thing is it sets duties you know it's a framework bill but the key the, the heart of the bill it's not a long bill, is that the act is that it it requires the Scottish government to make a good food nation plan and it sets out essentially what that plan has to cover and what's got to be in it. So what it does is it brings together the food system into a single plan, is the idea. And it makes Scottish government consider the food system as a whole, its environmental impact, its health impact, its inequalities impact, its impact on fair work. All of those different bits, animal welfare, have to be brought into the plan. That's the whole idea of it, is because as you know. Food doesn't belong to any one department. You get policy making in silos, often which is pushing against each other. So, yeah, we want to support the food and drink industry. Sure, we want to create jobs. But if they're producing products which aren't keeping us well, then we've got a problem. We want farmers to do well. We want them to, to grow food. But if the emissions from their food production are messing up our climate targets, we need to change those things. And you can't. You, you have to look at those things in the round because they all have knock-on effects. Does that duty that you mentioned run across all aspects of government in the same way that all areas of the Welsh government have duties under the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act? It does. I mean, there's a detail in the Act about specified functions, which is too boring to go into. But broadly speaking, it runs across you know health, education, environment, climate change, economy, rural policy, all the different bits that you, all the different government departments in a sense, would have a say on uh, food policy. And one of the good things Scottish Government's been doing is running an interministerial group with people from all those different departments sitting around the table going, what are we going to do about food? And I think that's been a real step forward. So the Act is in place and the challenge now turns to implementation. The Scottish Government has published its plans, but I don't think you were very impressed, Pete. Why was that? Well, it's taken a while. I think it's been 18 months since the Act was was passed um, to get this draft plan. We were expecting something, I think, a little stronger, both in terms of analysis and in terms of proposals. So on the analysis first, we didn't see, if you like, a a very clear exposition of the systemic problems in the food system in Scotland, of which there are many, you know, and, and understandably Brexit and COVID and the invasion of Ukraine hasn't made those things any easier for anybody, um, whether consumers or producers of food in Scotland. But, you know, it would have benefited from a much more granular analysis, I think, about some of the indicators we've got for food system performance in Scotland um, and how we're doing the impact of policies to date. So that would have been really helpful in a way that I think Henry Dimbleby set out quite well in, in the national food strategy, you know, some of the sort of the context for why we need to take a food systems approach but I think on the the policy intent, I think it was weak in a whole number of areas where we were expecting, I think, a clearer direction of travel about which way we were going. You know, whether that's trying to, um, you know, reduce the promotions of, of high fat and sugar and salt food, whether it was about progressing the agriculture transition, whether it's reducing food waste, um, you know, whether it was tackling issues about fair work. 
it doesn't really bring those together in any way with any new like momentum or targets or we're going to do this. So it reiterates a number of existing targets. It lists a number of existing policies. But I think our sense is that if we're going to make the sort of change we need to make in our food system, we need a much more ambitious approach, a sort of step change in how we do things rather than, if you like, continuing business as usual and hoping that's going to deliver. When, for example, with you know our obesity numbers in Scotland, they haven't shifted in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So you know either it's okay but if we don't think it's okay, what are we going to do to change it? Yeah. And we have just had really, really depressing life expectancy figures in Scotland. Um, it's now gone down to under 45 for a man in the poorest areas of Scotland. Food isn't all of that, you know, by any means, we don't think that. But food's something we can actually really focus on and try and fix and get right. Mm-hmm. Um, but where we wanted a greater sense of urgency mm-hmm. and less of a sense that we're doing okay because we're, you know, it's not people aren't trying but we're not doing okay. There's a degree to which it feels like the plan was rushed out to coincide with Burns Night. And if the act is simply used to promote existing Scottish food and drink businesses, then it would have failed, won't it? So what are the key areas in which you want to see action? Okay, we certainly want to see a wholehearted transition to healthy, sustainable diets. And we'd like to see that much more like the new Nordic diet approach, you know, 20 years of high level government commitment to shifting the way we do food in Scotland, you know, and I think the new Nordic diet is a great example of that. There were lots of really specific examples around like the, the whole grains initiative, doubled the consumption of whole grains in Denmark over a period of time. Now that's a massive change. It's really hard to change what people eat. The whole grains initiative, that might have been a good thing to do, for example. Um, we wanted to see, you know, much clearer support for short food chains, you know, market gardens, not because they're going to produce all our food, but because they bring people closer to their food. We wanted to see a big investment in, you know, not just school food standards, which we have, which are great, but really trying to raise the whole profile of school food as a key thing to promote health and well-being, but also bring school much, food much more into the curriculum of schools, not just learning to cook, but understanding the food system as a whole. And the kids we spoke to today, I think, were hungry for that sort of learning and were already really, really well-informed. It was really great to see that. So we want to, we want to see a action on a number of fronts to, to make this food system change. And in a, a real sense, there's a high-level commitment to transforming the food system while obviously maintaining jobs. You know, we want to maintain jobs in the food sector. But what, what I think Scandinavian countries have shown is that it's possible to create a lot of new jobs mm. um, while changing, if you like, you know, some of the fundamentals of how we do food. And we, don't, we, we really we think we should have been more aspirational. We should have been drawn on more from other countries' experience. Yeah, um, yeah and we have a whole bunch of dead specific things you could do from ending cages for animals, getting, you know, sows out of stalls, you know, lots of things that are quite specific. But overall, we'd like to just see this sort of cross-departmental ambition, high-level commitment. And and like you say, after a year and a half, we had hoped for a more sort of strategic launch rather than what it felt like was, oh, it's Burns Night, let's have a good Food Nation plan. Pete Ritchie from Nourish Scotland.
Planet Soil is a groundbreaking film that transforms the earth beneath our feet into an exciting and dynamic ecosystem. A nature documentary that turns worms and mycorrhizal fungi into thrilling characters with compelling lives. The film is co-produced by Ignis van Schaik. I asked him why he wanted to make this film in the first place. Well, we've been filmmakers for uh, 20 years now and, and we're always looking for subjects which make the unseen scene. And and we we did films on on nature, of course, above ground. But I think the soil beneath our feet is the most unseen uh, biodiversity and nature uh, that we have, and and people are really uh, connected uh, directly to it every day. So it's the basis of our existence on Earth. So we thought it would be a good story to take people under the under the surface and tell them a story about the. Uh, biodiversity which is living there. Of course, when you make a film, you want to fit into the zeitgeist. So why was now the time for a film about soil life? Yeah, I think it's 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 all about um, being more and more aware that uh, we people are part of nature instead of that we are able to manipulate all kinds of things. And of course, in the in the past 70 years, uh, especially in, in, in the Netherlands, but I think also worldwide, we have been been increasing using the, the soil as a substrate where we didn't uh, uh, have any eye for the biodiversity. And now we are more and more progressing on understanding more about the underground world and the importance for us and for plants and for trees and animals and everything. So... I think it's 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 a time where there's more and more interest and more and more awareness. So I thought we we had to film at the right moment uh, in time. I feel like this is the nature documentary I've been waiting for. I've watched wildlife in rainforests and on savannas, but I've been desperate for somebody to go beneath the ground. So who are the main characters that this film's going to introduce us to? Well, well, of course, uh, the 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 creatures, the small creatures living uh, under the soil are, are our main characters. Um, so it's the earthworm is very important. The bigger creatures are the, are the mole, and of course you have the, the nematodes, and and it gets smaller and smaller to bacteria and viruses. But but for us in the film, it was also important to have the human perspective uh, in the film because you can you can make a, a one and a half hour film about the 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 underworld and and living creatures there, but then you would lose your audience. Uh, we thought, so we also created. Um, a storyline uh, which is more or less the backbone of the film where we follow a group of people who are not specialists but who are discovering uh, and, and developing a, a, a garden where they, uh, they they grow vegetables and they learn step by step that it's not uh, in the way of manipulating everything but looking at nature and being patient and, and trying to live with nature. So we did the human perspective in this document as well, but but I think the main characters, of course, the, uh, the fantastic biodiversity and living creatures under our feet. There's so much never seen before footage in this film, worms being born, for example. So did you have to invent new ways of capturing moving images beneath the ground? Yeah, that was one of the big challenges in the, in the film because we were, uh, when you start your research uh, on the film, you also look at the technical side of it. And we tend to look at the BBC and, and other, of course, nature producers, but there wasn't much done uh, so far. And, and, and we understood why, because you, you, when you can't start a film underground, you can't dig a hole in the ground and put a camera in and start filming. So we had to do a lot of studio work and discover 
uh, how to use the best technique to, to also shoot it on 4K for the, for the big screen, of course. And for us, uh, a discovery was to, to get into contact with scientists who are, of course, uh, working every day with watching through microscopes. So we did a lot of uh, research there and we came to a, a special film set where we use microscopes, we use lightning, special lenses to be able to film uh, all those uh, small creatures which are we film normally on, on maybe one centimeter in square or one millimeter in square. So it's really very, very tiny. So the, the special thing for us was that we did a lot of studio work for this film instead of our other films who were more the above biodiversity where you go into the fields. So this was more or less uh, creating uh, a studio setting where we could be able to have the same conditions to film all those small creatures. Ignis, what for you is the most exciting moment in the film? What are you most proud of? Well, I'm, I'm most proud at, at filming them all underground because it's it's a very uh, difficult animal to film. Uh, of course, he's, he's, he's one of the main characters uh, in the film and also main, one of the main characters um, making the soil loose and, and of course his role in the whole, uh, in the whole chain uh, underground. But it was very, very difficult to film it in nature. So we, we worked together with a, a couple of farmers to, we dug in some cameras and we had some footage, but it wasn't fantastic. So we created a complete studio where we had this whole setting uh, for the mole. But then, of course, we had to have a live mole. Uh, and normally they get caught, but they get killed because they, they disturbed uh, the fields for, for, for the cows and so. So we were... Uh, in connect, connection with uh, a couple of, of, of those catchers. And, and I said, well, you can call me anytime when you have a live mole in your, uh, in your, in your boat. And so, so when someone called me at four o'clock in the morning, so I jumped into the car and I called the cameraman and we went to the studio with the mole and we filmed the whole setting within a half a day or so. So that was for me a fantastic moment to see the results of uh, many uh, preparation and being able to, uh, to film this. And presumably the mole was humanely released afterwards. Yes, he he, uh, he was alive and kicking. So so that was he escaped uh, his death uh, through being an actor in our film. And just finally, how can people watch Planet Soil? How's it going to be distributed in the UK? Yeah, well, we started out last year in in Holland, in the Netherlands, and and we created, of course, the the English version of Planet Soil, and also a Planet Soil Junior for for kids between seven and four, 30, fourteen. And now we are we are progressing in in uh, discussing with with local uh, uh, cinemas also in the UK with uh, agricultural uh, uh, organizations uh, with educational organizations to start screening. So I think the best is when someone's interesting to contact me. It can through LinkedIn or to our uh, website uh, to see if we can uh, plan something because we think that film is best suited to watch together uh, because it's it's a, a film uh, not about uh, good or bad it's a film which connects people uh, and looking at at the importance of soil so it would be fantastic if people watch this and and contact me and see if we can arrange a screening in their local cinema or at the farm or at a, any other location that was Ignis van Schaik, the co-producer of Planet Soil, bringing us to the end of today's programme. I'd like to thank all my guests and I hope you've enjoyed the conversations. If you have, please take a moment to share our content and do get in touch if you've got news to share. More as ever on our website, 8.9.com. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.